from the Mercy One Studio. Support for Faith on Trial and Iowa Catholic Radio provided in part by Imogene Ingredients. Our freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. It's time to hear from the top Christian litigators in the nation who have come forward to tell us the truth and help us defend our faith. Hear ye, hear ye. All rise. Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Menno is in session. And good morning on this holy Thursday morning. Uh, welcome to everybody who's listening. I usually say we're coming to you from the Mercy One Studios in West Des Moines, but right now uh, Gina and I are both at our homes, and only uh, Jimmy Olson and Deacon Tony Valdez are uh, 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 risking life and limb, I guess, to go into the office to keep the uh, the studio going. So we hope that uh, that the technology that we're using can get uh, everything uh uh, accomplished today as it's supposed to, but uh, forgive us a little bit if we have some problems because everybody is kind of remote today. So Gina is with us too. Gina, how are you? Good morning. I love the wizardry of technology that we feel like we're in the same room, but we are miles apart. We're miles apart and uh, we have Skype, uh, but unfortunately we don't have everybody on on the picture phone with Skype. And at least Gina and I could see what we were doing and could... Uh, um, let each other know, you know, who was next up to talk and whatever. So we're kind of doing this blind a little bit, but that's the nature of things today, I guess. But yeah. this is good Thursday morning, and um, we ought to remember that we're just starting the Trinitum today, and this is, of course, the um, most sacred time in the church year. And unfortunately, this year we're going to miss a lot of the beautiful liturgy that is uh, is uh, available this year. I, I've always thought, Gina, that the the time from the Holy Thursday Mass to the Easter Vigil were the most beautiful liturgies in the whole uh, liturgical year. Yeah, I always consider those an opportunity to jumpstart my year. It's my new year, you know. New, I've gone through Lent and I've um, become closer, and it's just a great reset time in my faith life. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately now, with uh, everything uh, closed down the way it is, uh, we're not getting out to those liturgies, although we can see them on TV and we can see them online, but it's not quite the same as being there and taking part in what's going on. So I like to remind people that if you're you're missing uh, being there... Uh, there are places like St. Uh, Augustine that has a chapel, an uh, adoration, 24-hour adoration chapel, that is open all the time. And you can still go there and pray, stop in and say a couple of prayers or a rosary or whatever it is, make a holy hour. Uh, and uh, I think that's important uh, this time, uh, especially with everything else shut down the way it is. I stopped in this week, um, and it was... I was the only person in there for about an hour and a half. So it was, I'm, I'm telling you, social distancing is very easy at the chapel. Mm-hmm. Yep. It certainly is. It certainly is. Uh, Luann and I were there the other night, and I think there may be uh, six people in there all sitting all over so that uh, social distancing <laughs> was maintained. Not an issue. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, let's open with a prayer. Gina, do you have a prayer for us to open? For this Monday, Thursday, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God of peace, bring your peace into our violent world. Peace in the hearts of all men and women, and peace among the nations of the earth. Turn your way of love to those hearts and minds that are consumed with hatred. 
strengthen us in hope and give us the wisdom and courage to tirelessly work for a world where true peace and love reign among nations and in the hearts of all. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. We've got an interesting program for you today, assuming we get all our electronics taken care of and everybody gets on the line. First of all, we're going to have Dr. Ann Hendershot from Franciscan University, and she's going to be talking about this uh, uh, idea that's uh, uh, taking hold around the country, allowing boys to play in women's athletics. And um, that's going to be an interesting discussion. And then we're going to talk with Attorney Charles Amadre from the Freedom of Conscience Defense Fund, who's going to talk about the possibility or at least the legality and the ethics of rationing health care during the pandemic. So we'll, um, we'll take timely. a break. Go ahead, Gina. Very timely issue, I think. Uh, for our listeners. Yes. Yeah, they are. So we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to have Dr. Hendershot with us. So this is uh, Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. Thank you for listening. And we will be back in about three minutes. Impoverished children break everyone's heart, but poverty seems like such a big problem. What can one person do to make a difference? For 17 years, Blessman International's passion has been to connect the resources of our donors with sustainable programs that impact the lives of impoverished children in South Africa. Our donors are feeding thousands of hungry children every week, providing basic water and sanitation for impoverished communities, and sharing the love of God in practical ways every day. Go to www.blessmaninternational.org and make your donation today. Is it time for a new roof? Then it could be time for you to get to know Bell Construction. Bell Construction is a roofing company entering its 30th year of business. They specialize in residential re-roofs, like commercial jobs, and have the experience to meet all of your roofing needs with personal service. With Bell Construction, the owner will come to your home or place of business in person to inspect and ensure the quality of work that you deserve. They pride themselves in working with you on a personal basis and making sure you are satisfied. Bell Construction, 515-963-4494. Nearly 64% of all abortions in Iowa are chemical or more commonly known, the abortion pill. At InterVisions Healthcare, we do not provide the abortion pill, but we do provide the medical information required to make an informed decision. If a woman regrets taking the first pill, she can come to InterVisions to help reverse the effects. Our nursing staff is trained in the abortion pill reversal protocol, a relatively new medical procedure, but we need your help in getting the word out. For more information on the free medical services at InterVisions Healthcare or to support the mission, visit IVHcare.org. Thank you, Big Red Q Quick Print, for underwriting the sports report. Family-owned and operated since 1980, Big Red Q Quick Print is a full-service print shop ready to help you with all your printing needs with speed and accuracy. Forms, manuals, brochures, letterhead, envelopes, business cards, custom invitations, design, and bindery. Big Red Q Quick Print, located across from Merle Hay Mall. Online at BigRedQ-DesMoines.com. Big Red Q Quick Print. We make printing easy. What is the best gift ever? Giving a Catholic education is at the top of my list. Your contribution to CTO helps families send their children to our Catholic schools who otherwise could not afford it. In giving to CTO, you receive the best tax credits ever. Pledge or donate online at ctoiowa.org. The bottom line, it's for the kids and their future. 
Support for Dowling Catholic Sports 365 is provided in part by Ashworth Vision Clinic with two licensed optometrists, Barbara Sheets, a Dowling Catholic graduate, and Dr. Todd Pedig. The Ashworth Vision Clinic team provides complete eye exams, contact lenses, glasses, glaucoma testing, and pre- and post-operative care. Ashworth Vision Clinic is located at Ashworth and 60th Street in West Des Moines, 515-440-4610, online at ashworthvision.com. We're back. This is Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio, and we're joined now by Dr. Ann Hendershot from Franciscan University. She's a sociologist there, and she's written an interesting article on uh, uh, what's going on with um, uh, boys in girls' sports. Doctor, are you there? I am. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Good. Well, we're happy to have you. Gina No, my co-host, is uh, joining us, too. We are in different locations because of the, the virus mm-hmm. here. So um, Gina and I are each from our respective homes, and uh, we have a couple people in the studio who are taking care of the board there. So uh, we hope that uh, our electronics <laughs> keep working the way they're supposed to, and we can uh, we can do this. But uh, pardon us if we get a little flummoxed here once in a while. All right. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Gina. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. All right, let's uh, talk about what's going on here. This is a uh, a, a thing that's, uh, I guess, been taking the country in the last year or so. Uh, Boys, high school boys, biological males, saying that uh, they want to play high school athletics as a girl on the girls' team because they identify as uh, girls. What's right. wrong with that, yeah, doctor? Well, there's, I think there's a lot wrong with that, <laughs> the unfairness of it, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners are a little concerned about this because this is a nationwide thing. It's not just Iowa, although Iowa is in the middle of this. They, um, Iowa allows transgender students, uh, male athletes or female athletes, to play on whatever team they identify with. So if a boy, a biological boy, identifies in uh, Iowa as a female, he can play. She can play now because she thinks she says she's a girl. I wrote this because I'm in Connecticut. I live in Connecticut when I'm not teaching at Franciscan. And uh, three female high school uh, track competitors, girls, young women, um, filed a Title IX discrimination complaint seeking to block biological males from participating in girls' sports. Um, they say it violates their Title IX rights, and I agree with them. I think it absolutely is unfair. Exactly. Yeah, well, the problem is it's really hurt girls' sports. Now, the transgender advocates, and I understand them because I'm sure these, these young men who are now claiming to be women, who believe they're women, they absolutely believe that they're female, um, are, you know, they're hurting, they're in pain also, but I don't know that this is helping them. 19 states in the country, including Iowa, allow this. There are several who don't allow this, um, like Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana doesn't allow it, Kentucky, Louisiana, Nebraska, and Texas. They all bar biological males from competing on female teams by requiring the student sex at birth determining which team they're allowed to play on. I just, 
the bottom line for me is the unfairness of it, and I'm just like asking, where are the feminists today? This is taking all of the awards, all of the trophies, and more importantly, all of the scholarships away from biological females, the ones that feminists claim to support, and giving it to these males. Now, in Connecticut, these two male athletes, biological male athletes, presenting as female, they now dominate all of women's track and field. They've won 15 women's track championships in the past two years. These are titles that were formally held, held by girls, nine yeah, different I re- As I recall... Yes. Oh, I think I lost yes. you. I'm not able to hear you. I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay. All right. Yeah, because... Uh, Technology is uh, linking me in and out a little bit here. But as I recall, in one of these cases, uh, the uh, the boys who are involved in these sports not only hold all the all the records, uh, but uh, the argument is that they have, since they claim to be girls, they have the right uh, to be um, accommodated. Now, my question okay. is, if these boys think they're girls, why don't they have the right to have some therapy that maybe will help them through whatever it is that they're having problems with? Right. As Catholics, that's the first thing we would say. We want to help them. We don't want to discriminate against them. We don't want to cast them away. We want to help them. But to say that is dangerous in this political climate. Um, there are many states well, that yeah, don't allow. Well, yeah, because in, in, in some women. states, if there are minors, uh, that conversion therapy that's that's used by right. some therapists is banned if you're a, a minor. Exactly. Right. And the the advocates for the transgender community would say we're injuring their self-esteem by you and I even having this conversation, that these mm-hmm. are women. They they identify as women. They They talk about themselves as girls, even though one of them has a mustache. He talks mm-hmm. about, the biological male talks about himself, refers to himself as a woman, as a Connecticut woman. And the two boys have taken away from girls in Connecticut over 50 chances, 50, to advance to next level races. And they, they now hold 13 individual meet records. And I know people say, oh, what's the big deal? It's just high school athletes. No, it's, it's a huge deal because girls are not going to go to college because of this. They're not able to get scholarships because they don't qualify to be seen at the higher level. The boys are taking so, their places, you know, as you advance. Yeah. It is a big deal. Do you, will, will the university levels uh, um, give the women's scholarships to these young men identifying as women? Or is it just denying the women from being the top of the class to be able to qualify for the women's scholarships at the universities? I would think there could be lawsuits if the universities did not give women's scholarships to biological males. The universities are as politically correct or even more so than the high schools are. So I think they will. I wouldn't so be this, surprised at all. So it will bleed right over into the um, university systems. Right. Uh-huh. Now, yeah, as I will. recall, in one of these instances, the uh, uh, one of the male athletes, we, and we have to uh, understand here that we're biological males are generally... Right bigger, faster, stronger than biological girls. 
And so naturally they have a competitive advantage then. But there was one case, I believe, and I, I think it might have been involved in this Connecticut case, where one of the, the male, biological male girls, uh, actually tried out for and did not make the men's team, the boys' team. Right, that is true. That did happen. And that's why in Iowa, they you have to be consistent. Connecticut allows them to go back and forth. <laughs> in Iowa, they have to play. They can, the person, it says right in your bylaws for male athletes, as long as they consistently identify as a male at school, home, and socially, not just for sports. Like you couldn't just be a male at home and a female to be on the team, um, which is, I guess, more consistent because you know, they're not getting the surgery necessarily. So that they still have all the testosterone and all of the, the male advantages that males have, the strength, the bone mass, everything. Um, so that's what's kind of bothering people. But if your listeners want to go to transathlete.com, that's where it gives a state-by-state breakdown in which states permit transgender children and youth to participate fully, which have some what transgender advocates would call discriminatory policies. Now, Iowa, right. what, they're happy. What was that with. website again? It's called transathlete, com. Okay. And you'll see a state-by-state breakdown. Connecticut is one of the more permissive ones, but there's 19 of them. <laughs> That's a lot of states. Some will require um, that they've been off. Uh, they've been. Um, they've had to take hormone suppression drugs like hor- testosterone suppression in order to compete. But even suppressing testosterone does not eradicate the male advantage in terms of bone mass and strength. It really doesn't. Right. No, now, in, in these states, um, uh, how many of them require permen- uh, parental permission for a biological <laughs> male to claim <laughs> female none status? No, none of them. That parental permission doesn't really mean much in high schools anymore. I mean, as you know that, you've talked about this on, on air, you know, getting an abortion doesn't need parental right. permission in public high schools in many states. Yeah, and, and we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago uh, discussing a uh, Wisconsin situation where the school children were allowed to choose their gender they wanted to be during school hours. I know. that That's frightening to me. As a grandmother, <laughs> I have a little eight-year-old grandson. Um, I, I worry about that because, you know, that that's wide-ranging. You know, the school is Mm-hmm. Part of the day, and everybody at school thinks of you as a girl if you're a boy, and then you go home and you pretend to be a boy for a little while, and then you go back. I worry more about the Equality Act. Um, I don't know if you've talked about it with your listeners, but the Equality Act is um, kind of a new ERA. The one oh, that, that was you know, passed by the House of Representatives last year. I know. Yeah, it's frightening. I think it's very frightening because. The Equality Act would invalidate all of those states, like I mentioned, Alabama, Georgia, all those states that don't allow this, it would invalidate their laws. It would invalidate mm-hmm. any attempt to limit biological males from competing against females. And so I, I imagine your representatives voted in favor of it. Um, Trump has said that, President Trump said he opposes the Equality Act, but I think the LGBTQ advocates will never give up their quest to destroy the equality women have worked for 
And I don't understand where the feminists are, except I think there's money involved um, from the LBT. <laughs> I just think it's, there's money because why? Else yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I don't understand where the feminists are either. I have some information here that I think uh, might um, uh, give some put some light on this conversation. There um, are standards in female athletics that are not the same as in boys' athletics. For example, uh, in women's volleyball the height of the net is seven inches lower than that used for men's. The standard oh, weight used in a high school shot put is four kilograms for girls and 5.44 or 36% heavier for boys. Oh, I didn't realize The hurdle that. height used in high school girls in a 100-meter hurdle is 33 inches. The boys is 39 inches. And the standard women's basketball has a circumference of 28 and a half to 29 inches at a weight of 20 ounces, where the standard circumference for the boys is 29 and a half to 30 inches and a weight of 22 ounces. So the rules and the way women's athletics are set up take into account the fact that um, um, men are taller, faster, stronger than women, and, and the standards reflect that. Now you have a situation where uh, boys are coming in claiming to be women, and they're playing uh, in these women's sports, and, and like it says, there's uh, uh, seven inches higher for men's volleyball nets, etc. cetera. Uh, well, so, so it gives them an even start. more unfair advantage. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So that enables even a mediocre boy player to be a star against girls. Mm-hmm. That's awful. <laughs> that's even that's even and more unfair. Yes. I, I especially admired your analysis of um, this policy change uh, as an outgrowth of the ERA movements of the 70s and how right. it was actually projected and um, d- uh, by Phyllis Shafley, that this would actually occur. She projected this. She did. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. I, I am a fan of Phyllis Schlafly, but that's embarrassing to say because she has become like a joke in society, which is really unfortunate. She's a very devout Catholic, mother of many children. I can't remember how many, but I think it was eight. A lawyer, brilliant, wrote books. And she almost single-handedly mobilized forces to block the passage of the ERA back in the 70s and 80s. And at the time, she knew that full equality um, meant combat positions, um, no divisions between men and women's sports. She knew that once radical feminists took over with their demands for abortion rights, affirmative action, and full equality, there was no turning back because... All the things that that brought, uh, we're paying for that today. I mean, it's no-fault divorce, where women end up much worse than men financially Mm -hmm. after divorce. All of this she predicted. She predicted these unisex bathrooms, and everybody laughed at her. What a joke she was with that funny hair and hairspray and everything. She she became like a joke, and she's a joke today, sadly. But I admire her so much. But people have made fun of me because I am a Phyllis Tapley fan. And I have a friend who wrote a book with her, George Newmeyer, and he said, what a lovely woman she was. She died a few years ago. Right. What a lovely, good 
Catholic woman. Yeah, she was she was certainly uh, kind of a prophet. You know, there's this social creep going on everywhere. Uh, I noticed, read mm-hmm. something just the other day where uh, after same-sex marriage, uh, Utah is now um, uh, decriminalizing uh, polygamy. Polygamy, yeah, and throuples. Mm-hmm. I, I just wrote an article about throuples. You know, couples, two females, one male, um, mm-hmm. was on House Hunters. I don't know if you did a show on that, but you should. Um, there's a we'll growing have you back for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, polyamory, which is a marriage or a relationship between three. Um, polyamory is many, of course, but... House Hunters, I don't know if you watch HGTV, but they had an episode, just like Phyllis Schlafly would have predicted, um, of two females married to one male. They got married in a ceremony in the Dominican, but they're searching for a house, just like they're a normal couple on House Hunters. Yeah, I don't don't watch that, but my wife does, (laughs) and she told me about it. Yeah, well, maybe she saw that one, yes. That's all part of it. So you're right about Utah and the polygamy, but polyandry is already normalized. I mean, when once it's on HGTV, it's pretty normal, and people thought it was really normal, except for people like me and you, yeah. <laughs> faithful Catholics. Yeah, I think we're becoming dinosaurs here. Uh, doctor, thank you for joining us today. We're out of time, oh, but we appreciate your, your comments okay, and you joining us. Me. And we'll have you back when we get on marriage <laughs> and all that, too. Okay, thank you. Thank doctor, doctor, thank you very Deacon. much. Dr. Ann Hendershot from thank St. Franciscan University. Uh, this is Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio, and we will be back in just a couple minutes. Is it time for a new roof? Then it could be time for you to get to know Bell Construction. Bell Construction is a roofing company entering its 30th year of business. They specialize in residential re-roofs, like commercial jobs, and have the experience to meet all of your roofing needs with personal service. With Bell Construction, the owner will come to your home or place of business in person to inspect and ensure the quality of work that you deserve. They pride themselves in working with you on a personal basis and making sure you are satisfied. Bell Construction, 515-963-4494. Nearly 64% of all abortions in Iowa are chemical, or more commonly known, the abortion pill. At Intervisions Healthcare, we do not provide the abortion pill, but we do provide the medical information required to make an informed decision. If a woman regrets taking the first pill, she can come to Intervisions to help reverse the effects. Our nursing staff is trained in the abortion pill reversal protocol, a relatively new medical procedure, but we need your help in getting the word out. For more information on the free medical services at Intervisions Healthcare or to support the mission, visit IVHcare.org. What is the best gift ever? Well, some might say a Catholic education, and I agree. But if you think you can't afford Catholic education, think again. Apply for CTO, and you could receive up to half your tuition for kindergarten through 12th grade. More information is online, ctoiowa.org. The bottom line, it's for the kids and their future. Support for Dowling Catholic Sports 365 is provided in part by Ashworth Vision Clinic with two licensed optometrists, Barbara Sheets, a Dowling Catholic graduate, and Dr. Todd Pedig. The Ashworth Vision Clinic team provides complete eye exams, contact lenses, glasses, glaucoma testing, and pre- and post-operative care. Ashworth Vision Clinic is located at Ashworth and 60th Street in West Des Moines, 515-440-4610, online at ashworthvision.com. 
Thank you, Dental Associates, for underwriting Dowling Catholic Sports 365. With over 40 years' experience, Dental Associates is a group dental practice with the mission of promoting optimum health and well-being to all patients, providing preventative, restorative, and cosmetic dentistry for the entire family. Message underwritten by Dr. Kenton Gleichman, Dr. Steve Carbaca, Dr. Christine Mulcahy, and Dr. Ben Nagel. Dental Associates, addressing your smile, needs, and dreams. Online at Des Moines-DentalAssociates.com. Here's your forecast on Iowa Catholic Radio. Strong high pressure moving into our area that'll be giving us very windy conditions through the afternoon with gusts as high as 45 miles an hour, partly cloudy and about 50. Overnight, clear, breezy, and upper 20s, and then we get a sunny day tomorrow with our high in the mid-50s. Weather is brought to you by Divine Treasures, a Catholic book and gift store serving the Des Moines community for over 25 years. I'm meteorologist Steve Hamilton on Iowa Catholic Radio. All right, we are back. This uh, There's an issue with the um, uh, coronavirus and uh, everything else that's going on medically these days about whether uh, uh, rationing health care is an appropriate action or not. Charles LaMadre is from the Freedom of Conscience Defense Fund. Uh, he is an attorney, well-known attorney, uh, in the area of uh, religious civil rights, and he's joining us today. Good morning, Charles. Nice to have you with us. Good morning, Mike. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, certainly. And uh, my co-host, Gina, is joining us. You have to understand we're all in different locations here, so it may okay. be a little bit confusing, but uh, we're all here, and we'd like to, to talk to you about uh, a memo that you've written for, I guess it was for the uh, uh, Thomas More Society, about uh, rationing of health care during the uh, coronavirus. Correct. And we sent it to the Office of Discrimination of the Department of Health and Human Services, and we know that they've uh, read it and commented on it as well. So it was ultimately for the decision makers we're going to have to grapple with these tough issues. What is going on right now? Because I know there are some places, uh, the New York Times has reported that uh, uh, people uh, in New York are starting to look at uh, how they're going to ration health care if that becomes a necessity. Uh, I know there was uh, a, a big thing in Washington State about the same thing. Uh, what are, first of all, before we talk about the ethics and the legality of it, what are they currently talking about when they talk about rationing health care? Well, we're asked to get involved in this issue by three uh, prominent uh, Catholic scholars. Uh, including Professor uh, Robbie George and uh, Professor Charles Camacy, and then most recently uh, Professor Ryan Anderson, because uh, we had health care uh, administrators uh, making statements uh, like the following. I'm, I'm quoting, and this is the uh, head of the Washington State Hospital Association. She said, if you're above a certain age and we have a shortage of ventilators, you don't get one. Uh, so they were actually talking about doing what has happened in, in places like Italy, in Spain, where if you're over like 60 years old, uh, you're just going to be left to die if you need a ventilator. And of course, in the more advanced stages of the coronavirus, uh, since it attacks the respiratory system, that's what's most in, in need for these patients is that they get ventilator assistance for their breathing. So there was a real concern uh, in places like Washington and, and now New York 
that they're going to have a shortage of ventilators and that people uh, basically are going to be discriminated against if they're over a certain age or if they have a disability. And the concern is, at least here in the United States, there's federal laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of age and disability, like the Age Discrimination Act, and there's a Federal Rehabilitation Act. Uh, there is a statute called Americans with Disabilities Act. All of these say if you're getting any type of federal funding, and, and pretty much all of these hospitals are, uh, then you can't discriminate. If you've got someone who is, you know, an otherwise maybe healthy 65-year-old person, you can't say you don't get a, a, a ventilator no matter how sick you are, no matter how much it might otherwise help you. And the same thing with the disabled person. And I think one of the, the, the primary issues here is we don't want to have the line uh, health care providers basically making these life and death decisions based on arbitrary discriminatory determinations, such as, you know, quality of what they perceive as quality of life, for example, for an elderly or a disabled person, or even uh, longevity issues. Uh, the issue should be, in each case, dealing with uh, catastrophe like the coronavirus or, or any health care situation. Of course, it's more critical now because of shortages. But any health care situation, we evaluate each patient individually based upon their needs, and based upon clinical factors regarding how well they're expected to respond to the treatment. And then you provide, you know, whatever available resources you have in order to address that particular patient's needs. And, uh, you know, for each patient, they may, may or may not have comorbid factors. And if someone does, then you take that into consideration. Uh, is age irrelevant? No, because the older you get, oftentimes, you know, the more other health issues you have. So, Age is not irrelevant, but it, it, what we're saying is you can't categorically uh, restrict someone or, or prohibit them from getting treatment simply because of some arbitrary uh, numerical cutoff, like, you know, you're 60, you're 65, so you don't get the treatment. Uh, fortunately, or you I don't have think Down that's syndrome. happening too much yet. Go ahead. Or, or you have Down syndrome or something like that. I, exactly I know correct. Th- there would be right. people that would worry about not only their grandparents, but if you have a Down syndrome child or somebody in that situation, uh, that would certainly be a worry to me anyway. Absolutely. And, you know, people carry this discriminatory, you know, a bias, uh, you know, in, into the workplace regardless of, of who they are, and that's going to include health care providers. And now in the age, you know, recent years of uh, having all of these uh, physician-assisted suicide statutes uh, passed, there's been, you know, a, a lessening of the significance of the value of every human life, regardless of age, regardless mm-hmm. of disability, because we've uh, adopted this euthanasia-type uh, mentality, at least among many people, which was, you know, kind of what drove eugenics and the, the Nazis is, you know, is it a life worth living? Who gets to make that determination? You know, we as, as Catholic mm-hmm. Christians... Every life is a gift from God. Every life is, is worth living. But once you start down that slope, whose life is more valuable? You know, does a, a politician then get the uh, ventilator instead of the truck driver? And, you know, one of the, uh, the issues is do first uh, responders get the ventilator? Since if they get a quick recovery, they can uh, hopefully be out there saving more lives. I mean, that's a legitimate question. Uh, but those are tough, those are tough issues. Now, what happens if uh, if uh, a system, uh, say this one in Seattle uh, that you talked about, <clears throat> if they decide that they're, they're going to issue an arbitrary cutoff uh, of age, let's say if you're over 70, 
you don't get the ventilator. Just period. Doesn't matter what the comorbidity well, is. The, the Department of Health and Human Services, after they, they got our memo, and I'm sure they're already working on theirs, but they said so they did read and consider ours, which was kind of nice. Uh, they uh, issued uh, their own set of guidelines on March 28th and, and basically you know, re- reminded all of these uh, hospital administrators, people in, in decision-making authority on these issues, uh, what the federal law is and what the potential repercussions are uh, in, in terms of administrative action that can be taken in the first instance uh, by the Department of Health and Human Services to cut off their funding and even to impose uh, fines. Uh, and there's even the, the possibility of civil lawsuits in some cases. There might be some immunities uh, for people in emergency situations making these decisions. But nonetheless, the uh, law does provide, in certain cases, for them to be sued uh, if, in fact, they discriminate against someone in violation of, of federal law and, and that person is, is injured uh, in the process. So uh, there's a panoply of potential consequences. Uh, that these healthcare professionals have been reminded of. And, you know, in the worst case scenario, uh, people could actually lose their licenses, I suppose, although that would be extreme. Uh, but these are all uh, issues that have been brought to the attention of the people in decision making authority, and I think they're taking it seriously. For example, in <coughs> New York, they came out with uh, some very, very comprehensive protocols, and they had uh, people who were bioethicists weigh in, and even religious leaders on, on panels when they developed those. I think it was after the, the last major uh, virus situation. So they already had a, a, a model, which is pretty good, and it makes it clear you can't discriminate on, on the basis of issues like uh, age and disability. So uh, it, we weren't starting from uh, scratch on these issues, as apparently they may have been in places like Italy and Spain, where you know you showed videos of doctors crying, saying they had you know elderly patients left to die, painful deaths, actually because they didn't have the resources. Uh, we haven't reached that point here, and the whole point of this conversation and the steps we have taken is to see that we don't reach uh, that point. But I think the, the healthcare community has now been made uh, aware that they've got administrative and they've got other legal consequences if they violate the law. At the very least, they'll lose their federal funding, which is no small deal since they depend on it to operate. I noticed that... Um the Catholic Medical Association issued on March 27th some guiding principles for um, medical professionals that I think was very timely and a reassurance to those professionals. Um, and it, it really emphasizes the dignity of the human life and kind of a, a guiding um, mechanism for our um, professionals. Yes, absolutely. And they, they play a very you know valuable role making sure that we look at this through the lens of our, our faith and, and rights of, of conscience, which guide us in a way that's always been fully consistent with the, you know, Hippocratic Oath of do no harm, which, you know, has been violated uh, not just in spirit, but, you know, the letter of it with the abortion providers and now physician-assisted suicide. So the Catholic uh, Medical Association and the uh, Christian Medical and Dental Associations have played an, an important role in kind of keeping the eye on the ball in terms of these important issues. So, Charles, uh, how does this work when I'm, the understanding is you, you enter the hospital, you, you have no family or friends to be there. Who's advocating for you in the, under those circumstances? Well, there's various groups that are, you know, are, are lobbying and they've been 
addressing these issues as well with the Department of Health and, and Human Services. There are uh, various rights groups for the disabled, and uh, we sent them a copy of our memo, and they got in, in touch with us, so we've been communicating with them and, and coordinating our efforts to make sure uh, the rights of the disabled are, are protected. And I also sent our, our memo to the people at, at ARP, you know, the Association for Retired People. So there's uh, okay. various organizations who um, have ostensibly, you know, looked out for the rights of the elderly and the disabled who are uh, presumably weighing in on this. I haven't heard from ARP, but I, we did hear from, again, the Association for Disabled People, and uh, they are taking uh, an active role and are concerned about these issues. But, you know, Roger Severino, who was appointed by President Trump to head the uh, Office of Civil Rights for Department of Health and Human Services, which is a big deal position, particularly right now, because they're at the tip of the spear in making sure that whatever protocols are followed are compliance with, with the law. Well, Roger is a practicing Catholic, and he's very sensitive to these issues. And I've worked with him before, including on the uh, marriage issues, when those are in the forefront. So he's assembled a, a good team of people who are looking at this very seriously and, and working hard, you know, pretty much around the clock, they said, uh, making sure that the federal law which protects uh, people uh, based upon age and discrimination are being followed in these circumstances, specifically with the issue of, of rationing. And like I said, they uh, issued their own bulletin on March 28th, which addresses these issues. And um, they asked us to weigh in on six important questions they have asked other groups, uh, including the stuff we've talked about. You know, to what extent do you look at advanced age and comorbidities? Do you look at uh, life expectancy? Does a child automatically get preference over, like, a 90-year-old? Uh, those types, and then the first responders, you know, get uh, priority. And the tough question is, can you take somebody off a respirator if they're not responding that well so you can give it to someone else? That's really a tough issue. Uh, so they're, they're looking at these issues and having various groups, uh, including those that advocate for the elderly and the disabled, um, weigh in on it so that, uh, and he's approaching it, you know, not just from a legal perspective, but from a moral and ethical perspective, which I'm sure is informed by his Catholic faith. So that's all very reassuring. I well, I noticed your um, uh, memorandum was written on March 23rd. Uh, you sent it to the uh, government, and they issue rules on the basis of it March 28th. So that was kind of quick action on their part. Yeah, no, and, 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 and to be honest about it. I'm sure they were working on it. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure they were too. I mean, yeah. they did, they did, uh, read it and, and they, uh, set up a meeting with us, uh, they, after they had issued theirs and asked us to look into these follow-up questions and they're asking other groups to do that as well. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it was good to know that they had read it and, and not surprisingly, uh, there's, uh, conclusions were completely consistent with ours. We went into a little bit more detail because we were doing a full-blown legal analysis addressed to people who had legal training, uh, such as you know, him and his team, and but his was addressed more to medical professionals. But we came to the same conclusions, obviously, because yeah. the law is what it is. You can't discriminate yeah. on the basis of age or disability. Just, just a little side question, and you mentioned uh, uh, assisted suicide uh, a few minutes ago. Um, right now, I guess all of the deaths that are occurring where uh, the coronavirus is 
is part of the person's health profile, they're listing it as the virus as the cause of death. Do you see any problems with that as far as statistical analysis later in making determinations on uh, uh, triage for patients the next time we have an epidemic of this because of that automatic listing that this person died from the virus? You know, that's something I haven't given a lot of thought to, and I don't really feel I'm necessarily the best qualified person to answer it, uh, because I'm not really sure how that would play out, the fact that they're listing as a, as a coronavirus, uh, you know, n- next time if they're going to be giving that undue weight in light of other comorbid factors, right. because, as you know, uh, most everybody who has died from it has some type of uh, other issue, uh, you know, diabetes or some type of immunodeficiency which has made them more vulnerable. Interestingly, you know, not in every case. So there's still unknowns about this, even some young people with no uh, known uh, predisposing uh, factors have gotten very sick. In a couple of cases, they've died. But in most every case, there has been some comorbid uh, issues. And, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any question in, in most cases that coronavirus uh, played uh, certainly a causative role. Was it the predominant factor? The impression I have is, well, the people likely would not have died at that time without the coronavirus. Uh, they weren't in the hospital, presumably, before they got it. So it was, it was certainly what we would call in the law a, a substantial factor. But uh, it seems to me, for purposes of medical as- assessment and, and statistical accuracy, you'd want to list the comorbid factors. Just like when you see on these death certificates, so they usually have three or four causes of death. You know, they'll have the primary cause, and then they'll have secondary mm-hmm. causes. So I think that would be more accurate in diagnostic and diagnostic and a better resource for dealing with future cases. If that's your question, yeah, that makes sense, because that's what normally happens when they list a cause of death, at least on the death certificates. In my practice, I've seen those periodically, and, uh, and that's how they handle it. Well, that's very uh, interesting and enlightening. We want to thank you, uh, Charles, for joining us today. We're pretty much out of time, but we appreciate your uh, uh, your uh, participating in the program and and the memo that you wrote. Uh, I have a copy of it, and it was uh, uh, it was a very interesting memo and very well documented. And so I would uh, I would refer uh, this to anybody who may have uh, somebody in the hospital uh, who are, or who is under a health uh, watch. Uh, so that they're no, they know what their rights are. I certainly appreciate you coming today. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having me, both Mike and Gina. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Attorney Charles LaMadre from the Freedom of Conscience Defense Foundation. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio, and we will be back in three minutes. What is the best gift ever? Giving a Catholic education is at the top of my list. Your contribution to CTO helps families send their children to our Catholic schools who otherwise could not afford it. In giving to CTO, you receive the best tax credits ever. Pledge or donate online at ctoiowa.org. The bottom line, it's for the kids and their future. 
Support for Dowling Catholic Sports 365 is provided in part by Ashworth Vision Clinic with two licensed optometrists, Barbara Sheets, a Dowling Catholic graduate, and Dr. Todd Pedig. The Ashworth Vision Clinic team provides complete eye exams, contact lenses, glasses, glaucoma testing, and pre- and post-operative care. Ashworth Vision Clinic is located at Ashworth and 60th Street in West Des Moines, 515-440-4610, online at ashworthvision.com. Thank you, Dental Associates, for underwriting Dowling Catholic Sports 365. With over 40 years' experience, Dental Associates is a group dental practice with the mission of promoting optimum health and well-being to all patients, providing preventative, restorative, and cosmetic dentistry for the entire family. Message underwritten by Dr. Kenton Gleichman, Dr. Steve Carbaca, Dr. Christine Mulcahy, and Dr. Ben Nagel. Dental Associates, addressing your smile, needs, and dreams. Online at Des Moines-DentalAssociates.com. Doing what is challenging because it's right. That's Blackbird Investments. In 2013, Blackbird Investments was born from the inspiration of St. Kevin. When it comes to building real estate, they look for creative solutions by forming strategic alliances, creating energy-efficient buildings, and engaging with local craftsmen. At its core, Blackbird Investments believes in giving buildings a new life. BlackbirdInvest.com Blackbird Investments. Doing what is challenging because it's right. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Faith on Trial provided by Paul Martin and Paul Mitchell, owners of Imogene Ingredients. Imogene Ingredients supply specialized feed ingredients for livestock and pet diets to improve maternal and young animal health in both conventional and organic production. Information about Pharmatan and other products at ImogeneIngredients.com. Paul and Paul are members of St. Augustine's Knights of Columbus and encourage their brother knights to keep standing for their faith. Thank you, Skeffington's Formal Wear, for sponsoring Dowling Catholic High School football. In business since 1951, Skeffington's Formal Wear offers quality service, style, and selection, providing tuxedos, suits, and casual groom attire for weddings, proms, and any other special occasion. Skeffington's Formal Wear, with convenient locations in Des Moines, West Des Moines, Davenport, Coralville, and Ankeny. All locations are family-owned and operated by members in their respective communities, fitting you for life celebrations. Online at skeffingtons.com. And we're back. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio in Des Moines. And uh, Gina, I think um, after this program, I'm going to have to go out and get a new headset for my Skype thing. I seem to be cutting in and out a little bit in what I can hear. I'm not sure. Is that an essential business? Will they have those uh, stores open? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, yeah, we're, well, I'll probably have to order it online someplace and wait three weeks to get it. Well, I... I you, Phenomenal guests today. I really enjoyed both of their analysis as on these policy changes or the review in the case of the uh, medical rights by the Thomas More Society. Um, yeah, that was very good. And um, the last question I asked him about whether or not we uh, uh, should always list the coronavirus as the cause of death and, and the people who die. Uh, I think if you remember last week, uh, last week or the week before, we had Alex Schottenberg from the uh, Euthanasia Prevention Coalition on, and we were talking there about how uh, in the states that allow this physician-assisted suicide, uh, the cause of death 
on death certificates always has to list the underlying disease the person has, the underlying illness, diabetes or heart disease or whatever, and not suicide. And if you remember, uh, <clears throat> Alex was talking about how that skews the statistics so that when somebody is diagnosed with something and they tell them, well, you've got, uh, you know, three years approximately, you know, before it is fatal, um, now by listing... Uh, the cause of death of somebody as that underlying cause rather than suicide, the statistics will skew in a shorter time frame uh, for the person. In other words, they will be told maybe that now uh, the uh, average lifespan with this disease is only a year instead of three years or six months or whatever, which may encourage more people to actually uh, engage in uh, physician-assisted suicide. So I was wondering if maybe the listing of uh, the coronavirus as the cause of death in all of these cases might not skew future statistics so that uh, uh, right. future yeah. doctors and medical uh, practitioners will not have uh, true statistics when they're looking at somebody's uh, mor uh, rate of uh, uh, morbidity. Exactly. In fact, we had that conversation this morning at breakfast about how this pandemic has created so much data, this, this t what we call the tiny invisible enemy, has uh, created so much medical data f and uh, policy data that we will be studying the results and the outcomes for years, both on a medical yes. level and a policy level. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, of course, it takes up uh, the news. Uh, it, it's kind of funny. We have a presidential election going on, and we don't hear much about it. You know, all right. we hear is about the, uh, the pandemic. And um, I think it's nice for people to get out once in a while and get away from that or to turn on one of these cable stations if they want to watch TV and watch an old sitcom or something just to kind of get away from that because you're just inundated with this almost 24 hours a day every time you turn on the TV or pick up a newspaper or something. That's what you see. Very interesting stuff. Yes, very interesting. Yeah, so I take it um, you're having your groceries delivered. <laughs> I am. In fact, I got up at 3 in the morning to schedule my um, Sam's pick up because unless you do it <laughs> at that hour you can't get a slot yeah so a whole new way of life you've got to plan way far out in advance yeah yeah i was talking to father jim livingston last night and he was telling me about how uh they call over to i guess it's high v and they go over to pick it up and the person comes out and <laughs> puts it in the trunk and they don't they don't mingle or anything. It's just right. uh, kind of very impersonal, but that's what we have to do. I hope we can get, uh, we can get out of this. Um, I, uh, I really miss uh, the weekends and, uh, and Sunday and being at the altar uh, when Mass is being offered. But uh, anymore, um, I'm starting to lose track of the days, <laughs> you know, because that, that break at, uh, uh, on Saturday and Sunday uh, isn't there anymore. It all kind of runs together. I feel the same. Yeah, I'm not on the altar, but being in communion with everyone else at the church is uh, a huge loss for me. Yeah, that's, that's a big part of the faith. That's a big yeah. part of the faith. Well, I guess uh, we've probably uh, kind of at the end of things here, so let's, uh, 
um, do our final prayer and uh, and then uh, sign off because I think so I'm looking at the clock here we're pretty much to the end of our time Gina yes so let's pray St. Michael the Archangel defend us in battle be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil may God rebuke him we humbly pray and do thou Prince of the Heavenly Host by the power of God thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Amen. I think we, we had a good program today. My cat didn't get in and jump on my lap while we were doing this, so I guess uh, uh, that's a plus, too. <laughs> no distractions. <laughs> no distractions. All right, Regina, Noah, and myself, thank you for listening. Join us next week for another edition of Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. Our freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano. Faith on Trial, Thursdays at 10 a.m. on Iowa Catholic Radio, iowacatholicradio.com, and the Iowa Catholic Radio app. Support for Faith on Trial and Iowa Catholic Radio provided in part by Imaging Ingredients.